الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله هو الله الذي لا إله إلا هو عالم الغيب والشهادة هو الرحمن الرحيم هو الله الذي لا إله إلا هو الملك القدوس السلام المؤمن المهيمن العزيز الجبار المتكبر سبحان الله عما يشركون هو الله الخالق البارئ المصور له الأسماء الحسنى يسبح له ما في السماوات والأرض وهو العزيز الحكيم وأشهد أن سيدنا وحبيبنا وهادينا محمدا صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم عبده ورسوله يا أيها النبي إنا أرسلناك شاهدا ومبشرا ونذيرا وداعيا إلى الله بإذنه وسراجا منيرا وبشر المؤمنين بأن لهم من الله فضلا كبيرا ولا تطع الكافرين والمنافقين ودع أذاهم وتوكل على الله وكفى بالله وكيلا من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا مضل له ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا هادي له أما بعد Dear committed brothers and sisters أيها المؤمنون We We Thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he has provided us with the lively and vital information that we need to see through what our internal adversaries are doing and what our external adversaries are doing. If it wasn't for the information that comes from you, O Allah, we would be lost in these social and political and military developments that are developing, increasing, and hurting us in many ways. <clears throat> in this khutbah, I'm going to be somewhat brief on dealing with our 
sectarian pathogen that has infected the Muslim body, social body, from continent to continent. The first statement that will lead us to relieving ourselves from much of the historical baggage that we carry <clears throat> is the ayah 134 in Surah Al-Baqarah. Tilka ummatun qad khalat laha ma kasabat walakum ma kasabtum wala tus'aluna amma kanu ya'malun. <clears throat> the approximate meaning of this ayah is that is an ummah that has now preceded you it has for itself whatever it has gained for itself and you have for yourself selves whatever you gain for yourselves and you are not going to be held responsible for what they did. <clears throat> now this ayah can be applied to every current generation. This ayah has uh, an ongoing reference, an ongoing meaning that applies to our generation, and after we go, it's going to apply to their generation. And future generations are going to take this ayah and relieve themselves of their perceptions of what happened to previous generations. Because these perceptions are not what's going to count in the scale of justice on the day of judgment. It's what we do that's going to count, not what we perceive. So if our perceptions are going to be a hindrance to doing what is right and to closing our ranks and getting rid of our divisions and our acrimonies, then that's the way we should go. Tilka ummatun qad khalat. لَهَا مَا كَسَبَتْ وَلَكُمْ مَا كَسَبْتُمْ وَلَا تُسْأَلُونَ عَمَّا كَانُوا يَعْمَلُونَ Now, a little mental input into understanding this ayah. We Muslims, in the course of the 14 centuries that we emphasize our history, our Islamic history goes back to the beginning of humanity. But the emphasis in our day-to-day -day lives is placed on the past 14 centuries. In these past four, 14 centuries, all of us Muslims, whatever description we may have for ourselves, some of them are madhabi descriptions, some of them are ta'ifi descriptions, some of them are nationalist descriptions, others are sectarian descriptions, whatever the case may be. When we have this Islam that we all belong to, we all identify with Islam, all of us. Is there a Muslim that doesn't identify with Islam? 
whether he's a Sunni or a Shi'i, whether he's a Maliki or a Jafari, whether he is an Arab or a non-Arab, all of them identify with this Islam. So what what's interfering here? What interfere interferes here is our interpretation of this Islam or our definition of this Islam. This is the intervening factor. So if everyone identifies with Islam, there should be room for them. As long as obviously they don't exceed the boundaries. They don't violate ma'luman min ad-deen bil-darura. They are not in confrontation with the necessary fundamentals of the deen. If that is the case and they still identify with Islam, why should I have bad feelings towards another Muslim who understands the ayah in the Quran that we all read? And this is only an example that someone washes his feet in wudu and another person wipes his feet in wudu. Why should this be an issue when both of them are referring to Allah and his prophet? And such is the case with many other issues. But then we approach a little more serious issues here that are part of history. They're not part of the Quran and not part of the Sunnah. These are part of history. There are people, individuals, who use bad language, sharp words, insulting statements when they refer to certain Islamic personalities at the dawn of Islam in the first hundred years of our 14 past 14 centuries there are individuals who use unbecoming words in reference to certain personalities you will find this more among the Shi'is than among the Sunnis. Sunnis don't use insulting words towards the Prophet's generation. Now, for, and these are individuals, we're not talking about Tashayyur or Shi'ism, we're talking about individuals in that context. Now, it, it doesn't mean the, the Sunnis don't have problems. The, the corresponding to this problem on, among the Shi'is is the Sunni problem of not being able to identify a political criminal who took over the reign of the Muslims after the Khulafa from there on. But this is besides the issue that you know we come across some individuals who will use bad words and then this creates very terrible reactions people get hostile people want to fight because of this now these people who use these bad words these individuals who use these bad words they say that imam ali is our paragon he's our ultimate example etc after the prophet obviously and so you look at Imam Ali, if he is your reference point, 
show us, bring us the bad language that he used against his companions who were with Allah's Prophet. It was, they were not differing on some minor issues as wudu. No one has ever brought up the issue. And I challenge anyone to go to their history books and dig up an argument at that time that al-wudu includes wiping of the feet and excludes washing of the feet. That wasn't an issue at all. The issue was obviously who was going to fill in the leadership position after the Prophet passed away. And in this regard, Imam Ali being raised from childhood in the Prophet's household, living with him, eating with him, talking with him, accompanying him every day on all occasions, qualified as he was when the Prophet passed away and right now a decision has to be made to lead the Muslims he saw that the people's rush was not towards him. That doesn't mean he wasn't popular. It just means that the people's perception at that time to keep the Muslims together, we're going to have to avoid you, Imam Ali, to be our leader. And we expressed in the previous khutbah his statement when he was surprised when he saw all the people cascading towards Abi Bakrin for Al-Bayah. So I mean, these are issues, these are serious issues in a sense. But he never used any pronunciation, any verbiage that was harmful to the characters of Abi Bakrin. Omar and even Uthman. None of that existed. So why do we have it among those who say, I am a follower of Ahlul Bayt. I'm a follower of the Prophet. I'm the follower of Imam Ali. Where did this come from? And who feeds this type of thing? Who will give this attitude and those types of speakers who will give them visas to travel around? Who will give them podiums to speak to audiences who will facilitate their travels here and there and all over the place so how did the imam interact with abi bakrin and umar and uthman he met with them he spoke with them he discussed with them he gave them advice if there was some type of hatred in this whole mix he could have easily at least isolated himself from them that's the least he could have done to send a message that things this thing is a violation what they've done Abi Bakrin and Omar and Uthman what they've done is a violation of Allah and his prophet least thing least thing he could have done just isolate himself not speak to them not in addition to that, he gave them bayah, knowing that he was most qualified. Yet, 
He didn't speak one ill word towards them or of them or against them. You'd think after 14 centuries, some Muslims would act accordingly. Then the other issue, there are some words that are used that hurt Muslims' feelings towards Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha. This flares up from time to time. And you may have noticed it in the past year. And the same thing, Imam Ali had his position and his disagreement with Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha. But did he disrespect her because of that? Did he say, did he use any foul language because of that? He knew she made a mistake. And he knew that that mistake was not a simple mistake. But he never, as far as my reading is concerned, if I'm ignorant of the subject, and I don't think after many years going up and down this avenue, but I'm still a human being. If someone has any information that says an Imam Ali used foul language, insulting words against the Prophet's wife Aisha, then please come forward. The ayah in the Quran places on our conscience a respectability towards Allah's prophets' wives. The ayah says, وَأَزْوَاجُهُ أُمَّهَاتُهُمْ The wives of the prophet, his wives, in reference to the prophet, are the mothers of the committed Muslims. And there is no type of conflict in a thinking mind between showing respect to the Prophet's wives even though one or more of them may have made a mistake and a serious mistake. There's no conflict here. But those who want us to kill each other, they want to make this an issue that divides us and then has us shooting at each other. There's another issue that I'm not going to dwell on, but has become an argumentative, a divisive, divisive, and then one of these discussions that leads to tension and friction and then warfare among some maybe less than thinking Muslims is what is called the Isma of the Imams. Are the Imams infallible, they don't make mistakes, or are they not? If some Muslims, some, uh, let's, let, let me be clear, <laughs> this khutbah goes out, I don't know where, but Sunni Muslims believe that prophets make mistakes. 
forget about for the moment imams prophets make mis- they don't they don't commit sins let's be very clear on this there's a world of a difference between making a mistake and committing a sin prophets do not commit sins prophets in their human nature are vulnerable to making mistakes and this is mentioned in the quran you read about prophet nuh what he said pertaining to his son you read about ibrahim his istighfar made asked allah for forgiveness towards either his father or uncle depending on your interpretation of the وَمَا كَانَ اسْتِغْفَارُ إِبْرَاهِيمَ لِأَبِيهِ إِلَّا عَنْ مَوْعِدَةٍ وَعَدْهَا etc. You take a look at Musa when he struck the man not intending to kill him and killed him. Was that or was it not a mistake? Wasn't a sin. His intention was not to do something like that. أَيُّوب إِذْ ذَهَبُ مُغَاضِبًا فَظَنَّ أَنْ لَنْ نَقْدِرَ عَلَيْهِ and etc etc we can't exhaust the whole script the whole divine writ on the subject so you come to these muslims who consider prophets make mistakes you're going to tell them well we have imams here that don't make mistakes it's not going to be accepted but that being the case still why should this become an issue of division and bad feelings and back and forth that leads to ultimately what we have today and i need not open the newspaper headlines for you to remind you of what's happening today among the muslims and then among the shias themselves some people say brother why do you speak about these issues and the answer to that is my brother my sister whoever's asking this question we are being killed because we're not speaking about these issues maybe if we begin to speak about them in a mature way in a mental way in a momentous way absent the baggage of history whoever can't get rid of the baggage of history yes i agree with you they should not speak about these issues because when they do they're going to bring about division and they're going to bring about defamation we don't want that but for those of us who have liberated ourselves from the baggage of history these issues have to be brought to light so we don't kill ourselves what you want me to be complicit I see all of these things happening around. I say, we are killing ourselves because someone's a Sunni and the other one's a Shiite. And this is us. And I'm not supposed to clarify this issue. The least that can be done is to, in an objective, non-subjective way, clarify these issues so that we can live with each other, each one of us, within their own convictions besides these issues as i said in the shi'i context the usul of deen is a tawheed and a nubuwa and al-ma'ad 
that's the general statement on this issue of course you, some add to that al-adil and al-isma and some may add something else without going into details but knowing what we know and we have a general common denominator history among us has anyone ever heard al-imam ali said that Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman are kafirs. Has anyone ever said that? Heard, read about whatever source they have that that was done? Has anyone ever said Abu Bakr or Umar or Uthman put Al-Imam Ali in the circle of kufr one way or the other? None of that happened. So these sectarians who are speaking within our masajid, within our conference halls, to our Muslim public, whether it's via a microphone, a simple microphone, or whether it is via satellite TV across the world, these sectarians have to be exposed because when we expose them, we expose their masters who are in Washington and London and Tel Aviv. And then we take a look at the Imams. As an example, Imam al-Sadiq, Jafar al-Sadiq. He had a pedagogical relationship with al-Imam Abi Hanifa. He was teaching, Abu Hanifa was learning. This was a teacher and a student. Was there any tension? Anyone draw any negative conclusions from this? The same thing with Imam Malik, who visits Imam al-Sadiq many times. And he has riwayat related to al-imam al-sadiq does this indicate that there's some type of very serious divisive tense fighting issue between them absolutely not so why do their followers or some of them and alhamdulillah it's not a majority of muslims that we are speaking about it's a tiny group of troublemaking individuals who are spreading these seeds of division among the Muslims. Another question that comes in this whole issue is, was Imam Ali practicing taqiyah vis-a-vis Abi Bakrin and Umar and Uthman was he practicing taqiyah now anyone who says that should be reminded of his qualities this the imam was frank was transparent was honest was straightforward in what he said and in what he did His history speaks for itself. 
Could you take that type of history and say all of a sudden he turned into someone who is concealing himself? He's hiding his personality and his character. So people who come to you with that type of statement, tell them, review your history, read, learn who al-imam was. And then after that, you come to me and you speak. Al-imam had his differences majorly with Talha and Az-Zubair. They went and fought against him. And when Talha died, the Imam spoke emotionally about him. He didn't use any bad words. His, he mourned him in a way that he felt sorry for a person who in the last phase of his life did the wrong thing but it was with passion or compassion there was no hatred there was no I won you lost this type of attitude and when a Zubair was killed Al-Imam said Bashir Qatil Ibn Safiya bin Nar break the good news sarcastically speaking to the killer of Ibn Safiya is another way of saying is Zubair tell him that he is going to An-Nar now you tell me this indicates a person who is in who includes those who could not understand the issues the way he does or is it a person who has become uh, an outright enemy of those who disagreed with him And finally, there's the issue of al-shafa'ah. Much of the Muslims make a big issue about al-shafa'ah. And this has nothing to do with the Sunnis and Shi'is because it's within the Sunni context itself. Whether al-shafa'ah is something, and al-shafa'ah for those who, and this unfortunately occurs for those who lack the proper understanding of the words that we are using. Shafa'a simply means to double or to couple. Witr, one, and then two is the shafi'a of one, is the follow-up to one. So if, if we just took the rudimentary understanding of the word and we say that the Prophet is due a shafa'a, and that shafa'a concerns his ummah. That means he is the one and his ummah is his second, is with, is coupled with him. In the, in the legal, in the linguistic sense of the word, what's the problem with that? Why does anyone have any problem? Especially when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَا يَشْفَعُونَ إِلَّا لِمَنِ ارْتَضَى Surah Al-Anbiya, ayah number 28. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَقَالَ رب 
rabbukum ud'uni astajib lakum no one who considers a shafa'a a component of islamic theology no one says that i am replacing allah with the prophet meaning i'm asking the prophet to do these things for me when we consider the prophet's shafa'a we are considering allah's love for his prophet to extend to us is there anything wrong with that but in the sectarian mind this has become an issue in which they dislocate the meaning of shirk wala yushriku fi hukmihi ahada walam yakun lahu وَقُلِ الْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ الَّذِي لَمْ يَتَّخِذْ وَلَدًا وَلَمْ يَكُنْ لَهُ شَرِيكٌ فِي الْمُلْكِ وَلَمْ يَكُنْ لَهُ وَلِيٌّ مِّنَ الذُّلِّ وَكَبِّرْهُ تَكْبِيرًا These issues, they have to be clarified and our conscience has to be cleansed and we have to return to our original position of al-bunyan al-marsus ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu taqullaha haqqa tuqatih wa la tamutunna illa wa antum muslimun wa'tasimu bihablillahi jami'a wa la tafarraqu wadhkuru ni'matallahi alaykum idh kuntum a'da'a فألف بين قلوبكم فأصبحتم بنعمته إخوانا وكنتم على شفا حفرة من النار فأنقذكم منها كذلك يبين الله لكم آياته لعلكم تهتدون ولتكن منكم أمة يدعون إلى الخير ويأمرون بالمعروف وينهون عن المنكر واولئك هم المفلحون اقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم ادعوه سبحانه وانتم موقنون بالاجابه الحمد لله الذي هدى صلى الله وسلم على سيدنا المصطفى وعلى اله وصحبه اولي النهى واولي التقى dear committed muslims this issue of sectarianism just to briefly follow up and give you an example of the poison that is in some and alhamdulillah that those places are not many in some limited communities in jordan a place where there's no significant amount of shi'is there if any at all there's an elementary or you may say high school level textbook that speaks about Ibn Sina Ibn Sina is known for his science 
philosophy, Islamic theological and mental contribution to the Muslims. So one of the teachers there in the school, and this is only just a simple example of the breakout of sectarianism. He tells his students after they read in their textbook about Ibn Sina's accomplishments, he says, and I'm going to quote here, على الرغم من مكانته العلمية إلا أنه رجل ملحد فلسفي قرمطي يسب الصحابة وقد حكم بكفره شيخ الإسلام ابن تيمية والغزالي والفارابي Now listen to this and this is the pollution of takfir that begins at that level with students in school like that in their impressionistic years he says to them regardless of his scholarly status and he's referring to Ibn Sina regardless of that he is an atheist a philosopher a qarmati that's in reference to a group of fanatics who assaulted the Kaaba. Yasubu Sahaba, he says bad words to the Sahaba. And Shaykh al Islam ibn Taymiyyah and al Ghazali and al Farabi judged that he is a kafir. Now listen to that. Anytime Muslims want to make progress, we have these types, obscurantist takfiris, who point to some of the scholars, some of the scientists, some of the discoverers in our advanced history, when we were the Mecca of scientists in the world, they used to come to Baghdad, they used to go to Al-Andalus, the world itself, to gain knowledge, just like the case is today with the United States and Europe. And now, these types of people who, just in the news today, yesterday decapitated 12 individuals, cut their heads off, and then they go to some historical ruins and they want to level them with the ground. That's the price of sectarianism. That's only one little example of the other examples that are circulating here and there and everywhere. And now, today we had the inauguration of the president here in the United States. We are Americans or we are legal residents of this country. And there have been statements that were made by now the president of the United States. He made statements that are very injurious to the 
Muslim community in this country and to the Muslims in the world. He is going to assume the position of the highest office probably in the world. And we're not supposed to speak about this. Mind you, we're out here in the street because we want to make the information that comes to us from Allah and His Prophet relevant to what is happening. So if a person like this becomes president, a Muslim is not supposed to think that Allah has some ayat pertaining to this type of development? A couple of ayat, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Isra, وَإِذَا أَرَدْنَا أَن نُهْلِكَ قَرْيَةً أَمَرْنَا مُتْرَفِيهَا فَفَسَقُوا فِيهَا فَحَقَّ عَلَيْهَا الْقَوْلُ فَدَمَّرْنَاهَا تَدْمِيرًا If we want, and we here is in reference to Allah Jalla Sha'na, if we want to destroy a social order, we instruct its wealthy class, meaning our instructions are brought to the attention of the ruling and wealthy class. Amarna mutrafiha. There's another qira'ah. وَإِذَا أَرَدْنَا أَن نُهْلِكَ قَرْيَةً أَمَّرْنَا مُتْرَفِيهَا If we want to destroy a social order, we have its wealthy class become its ruling class. Now, if a Muslim is reading an ayah like this in the Qur'an, and the ayah goes on that says, eventually that society is going to be destroyed. فَفَسَقُوا فِيهَا because they're going to cause degeneration in that society. Our decision becomes due. And then we destroy it to smithereens. If I'm reading an ayah like that, the wealthy class becoming the ruling class. And I see, I know the meaning, and then I see this happening in front of my own eyes. Listen to those who are going to become the cabinet as of this week and next week when they are confirmed by the Senate and the Congress. Who are these people? Aren't they the wealthy class? What's going to happen? We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know the details. That's a general statement. They're going to cause degeneration in this society. They're going to cause disintegration of this society. How are those details going to play out? We don't know. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows these details. But He has given us inside information as to what will eventually happen. Now this person who has become president of the United States, he's my president and he's your president if you're an American citizen. He has said awful things about Muslims. But he has said also awful things about the intelligence services. 
Now that places him on an equal par here. Because the Muslims have been victimized by the intelligence services. So is he going to follow up and get to the bottom of this? If he is, I think all Muslims should be supportive if he wants to get to the bottom of this. But if he's just putting on a show, Allah knows what he is doing and what he wants to do. And he will eventually be exposed. And he will eventually go to Allah Jalla Jalalu, who will have him answer to deception in his words and in his policies when he was here as President of the United States. In the past, I don't know, since 2001, in the past 16 years or so, the U.S. said it's going out into the world to democratize, especially the Muslim East. They want to democratize the Muslim East. In the, in the persona of this president, those policies resulted in the autocratization of the United States. They wanted democracy over there, and they're getting autocracy over here. We don't know if this person is true to his words. He has three previous presidents to think about. First, the first one was John Kennedy, John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy wanted to break from the established policies of the United States towards what's called the Arab-Israeli conflict. And he told the Israelis, if you're going to, in the, in the 60s, this was the early 60s, when the Israelis were about to finish their nuclear program. He said, if you go on and you finish your program, you're going to go one way and we're going to go another way. Our interests in that part of the world are not going to be the same. And he didn't finish his term. They got rid of him. The deep state got rid of him. The next person who wanted to rock the boat of the deep state was Nixon. He couldn't do it. They came back at him and they expelled him from the White House. The third person who wanted to change policies in the Middle East was Bush the father, who he is said right now is in intensive care in some hospital in Houston, who by the way, used to be the vice president just a few blocks down there when we were in the street. We're still in the street, he's in intensive care. He said in the months after he was elected, meaning bef between November and January, he was going to change the, poli his pol the U.S. policies in the Middle East. And he has some experience. He was head of CIA in the 1970s. He knows a little bit more than the average person. And he knows about the deep state and all of this stuff. And they figured out what he was trying to do. He went to Capitol Hill towards the end of his term. And he said, I'm one little man up here on Capitol Hill. 
meaning the Congress was against him. He tried to play politics with the deep state. The deep state played politics with him. He could not be elected for another term. So if the current president of the United States, who has just taken office today, if he is true to knocking heads with the deep state, he has to be careful because he has three precedents that preceded him. Three presidents that preceded him. And he hasn't served in government. He hasn't served in the military. He's been a businessman all his life. The jet set type. From capital to capital. From continent to continent. From lavish communities to lavish communities. Look at what we have in the Muslim countries. Don't we have the same types? The kings that we have in the Arabian Peninsula. Aren't they miniature Trumps? They also live the jet set. They go from capital to capital, from continent to continent. And they live on their instincts. So what's new? He's, he said he's going to move the U.S. Embassy to Al-Quds, to, to Jerusalem. Where are these Arabian armies that are fighting a poverty-stricken country like Yemen? In Yemen, there's no military targets. When they're dropping bombs, where are they dropping bombs? On civilian areas, in cities, to kill innocent people. And they hear, they're not deaf, they hear that there's a political intention in the U.S. to move the embassy to Al-Quds. Has any one of them said, we're going to shut down the American embassy in our country? Did you hear anything like that? Or we're going to put together a grand military like they did for Yemen and they talked about doing for Syria? When it comes to the Palestinian issue, they have marginalized it. So let us think and think again before we pass quick judgment and refer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in his ayat when he speaks about these types of characters. إذ قال له قومه لا تفرح إن الله لا يحب الفرحين وابتغي فيما آتاك الله الدار الآخرة ولا تنس نصيبك من الدنيا وأحسن كما أحسن الله إليك ولا تبغي الفساد في الأرض إن الله لا يحب المفسدين قارون was from the people of Musa and he acted just like everyone who acquires extravagant wealth. Do you hear the news item in this past week? Eight individuals of extravagant wealth in this world, they have as much money, as much wealth as half of humanity, as, as 3.2 billion people have in this world. Just eight individuals. And don't tell me we are not on a collision course with Allah. This president and some of his 
appointed officials. They don't believe in climate change. The prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when they spoke to their people, they said, you better get your relationship with Allah in a normal fashion, on the right course, or else catastrophe, natural catastrophes are going to happen. And we had floods, and we had earthquakes, and we had volcanoes, we had asakha, we had atama, we had rih sarsar atia, we had all of the manifestations of what is called today climate change. Science today, in a sense, is expressing prophetic words, but people who are intoxicated with wealth don't want to agree. They say this is a hoax. That's what they said. That's what ancient civilizations and ancient cultures said to their own prophets. That's a hoax. We hear it again today. If we are reading Allah's book and we are understanding what's happening in the world today, what should we do? Bury our heads in the sand and make believe nothing is happening? Or become responsible and express Allah's words without apologies and without reaction. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna tiba'a wa arina al-batila batilan warzuqna ijtinaba wa la taj'alhu multabisan alayna waj'alna lilmuttaqina imama اللهم اهدنا في من هديت وعافنا في من عافيت وتولنا في من توليت وبارك لنا فيما أعطيت وقنا شر ما قضيت فإنك تقضي ولا يقضى عليك وإنه لا يذل من واليت ولا يعز من عاديت تباركت ربنا وتعاليت فلك الحمد على ما قضيت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك وصلى الله على محمد وآل محمد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر فيها اسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم إن الله يأمركم أن تؤدوا الأمانات إلى أهلها وإذا حكمتم بين الناس أن تحكموا بالعدل إن الله نعم يعظكم به إن الله كان سميعا بصيرا ولذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة
حي على الصلاة حي على الفلاح قد قامت